Hello and welcome back to Running the Table, a podcast all about running and playing tabletop role-playing games. If you would like to ask a question to me, your host, or to any of my guests, please email them to rttpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can send them to Running the Table on either Twitter or Facebook. As always, I am your host, Keith, and today we are joined by Luke from Have a Go Heroes. Hi, Luke. Thank you Hello. for coming on. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's uh, it's always great to have people from all sorts of different areas on and all sorts of different podcasts on. But first things first, for those listeners who may not be familiar with you or Have a Go Heroes, could you give us a little bit of background about yourself, how you got started in tabletop role-playing games, and how Have a Go Heroes got going and what it's about? Sure, I will try and keep it brief. Um, I'm sure I could probably talk about it for a while, but I will just give the uh, the highlights and the plot hooks, as it were. So mm -hmm. I haven't actually been playing tabletop myself for that long, maybe around three or four years now in total, which, compared to a lot of veterans, is quite a small amount of time. I originally got started in LARPing, or live-action roleplay, for people that don't know what that is. Oh. And then got really into the roleplay aspect of that, and there was a group back home where I'm from in Nottingham in the UK. We used to play mm -hmm. war games together, and a few people were interested in maybe starting a tabletop game. And so we all looked for a, a dungeon master at a local gaming group, because none of us knew, had ran a game before of any kind, yeah. and found someone that fit, and has, who very quickly became our close friend, and started up a tabletop game from there. From then, we had a idea of we would never do a game in our world without every player there. So mm -hmm. once players start to get busy, and sometimes they had to miss a session, we instead would take turns being the dungeon master to try and practice in a safe space in that group. So that's how I got started. I did just okay. a simple one-shot in our home group and got hooked from the start and went from there. So I've only been DMing for about a year and a half now. Uh, with Have A Go Heroes, that again, that was formed by the DM from our home game, Ben, who there are some videos on the YouTube channel of a mm -hmm. pirate game that he ran called Legacy of Druid, and I was a player there. And then I started my own game with a another bunch of people almost simultaneously with that campaign. When that campaign ended, sadly due to real life, which gets in the way of all of our fun, he couldn't <laughs> continue uh, with the channel, but is still a supporter, and I kind of took the reins from him, and I've been, I've been doing the stuff for the channel ever since and it kind of became my project and my baby okay very interesting uh, so yeah not, what... not planned at any point it was just kind of <laughs> flowed one thing into another into another and now i have a youtube and twitch channel and one campaign with several others ongoing all planned and yeah it just kind of went from there yeah i mean isn't that how life goes sometimes that yeah, just pretty kinda, much. Yeah. Uh, well, that's very interesting. Uh, what What do you think has been your greatest challenge that you've run into uh, as your time, either as just a DM or GM, or specifically with Have a Go Heroes? Have a Go Heroes, I'd say it's what a lot of people struggle with, and that's exposure and getting getting the word out there and getting the getting the views which for any small channel, there's a lot of them out there and a lot of great ones out there. It's quite difficult mm -hmm. to make yourself known among it. Uh, how I've solved that is keep pushing with social media and things like that and getting involved with the community, but caring less has been kind of the solution to that about how many people watch and just concentrating on enjoying the game. Yeah, I, just... I mean... Go it ahead. is always difficult... Uh to do sort of uh, that self-promotion and to get your name heard. But yeah, I, I, I've run into that struggle myself as well on this channel and others. And I think that what you've identified as the, the best way to deal with it of just 
not caring as much and just having fun with the game. Yeah. That's probably the best advice I can give as well. Yeah. Especially for running a a game to watch is a very different game to running a game to play. And so if you start mm-hmm. concentrating on one over the play, I find that it, the players enjoy it less and it gets less, gets less fun to watch and it's kind of a cycle that goes from there. Yeah, I actually think that a lot of people that watch, you know, tabletop role-playing games and Dungeons and & Dragons or listen to live play or actual play podcasts are into it for the feeling of being at the table. Yeah. So when it's a little too productionized, it, it tends to not carry that same appeal. Yeah, it, if you lose the momentum and the chemistry because people are too busy trying to push a production mm-hmm. rather than a game, it can, yeah, you get a little bit of a disconnect with them, I find. Yeah. Well, I, oh, sorry, I was just going to say, the, uh, in terms of what was the probably biggest challenge for me, I'd say that was that was my first actual game of DMing in which I accidentally started with the uh, the Reign of Olympus campaign, which is the one, the main mm-hmm. one that we're known for and the one we're doing now. The world plot for that, just very briefly, I had an idea of world plot and what is happening in the wider area and what the big bads are and the big plot points are, but to flesh out the world and the cities, I got about a dozen <coughs> um, like experienced LARPers and role players to play the different Olympian gods in a it was in a Facebook group chat and they each got a god that suited them and a city and then I threw random plot points at them and they'd interact over chat about a week okay. into that before I was about to DM my first game they all decided that they'd got to a certain part in it that they'd really like to do as a dungeon and as a session and I being a glutton for punishment, said, yeah, sure. And so I had 24 hours to plan a dungeon for about 11 people who were all gods, (laughs) so I couldn't make them level one adventurers. I had to... I essentially went through the monster manual and gave them stuff that was between challenge rating like 10 and 15 as their characters, and had to find some way of throwing a challenge at them. I think Mm -hmm. I basically threw a kraken at them. Was the... (laughs) So yeah, so I'd say that's the biggest challenge as for being a DM was I definitely got thrown in the deep end there, but it kind of helped me think on my feet, which is a good skill for that. Oh yeah, uh, especially running a game or being a DM or GM, that improvisation yeah. and thinking on your feet, that's going to be a, a key skill. Yeah, things like the lazy dungeon master are a little bit like my Bible um, <laughs> that I stick to is... Helped not over planning a session because it's there's no point. Oh yeah, the the players are almost always going to find something that you did not anticipate. Yeah. My general rule of thumb for myself in games that I've run has been to plan out just enough to make the setting realistic and immersive, and yeah. maybe some plot hooks and things like that to get them involved. Yeah, I've I've done something similar. I've Basically, with the, the help of the role players playing, the it's made it easy because I know mm-hmm. what's going off in different places. And rather than a calendar timeline, it's more of a level timeline. Like what level the players are dictates what things are happening in the world around them. And it will depend where they are and what they interact with to whether they see it or not. And sometimes they won't see it and they'll just see little Easter eggs of the aftermath of what happened and... They might not notice why something's changed, but I'll know it's because one of the gods went Olympian on the scenery and now it's gone, for example. So yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's how I've dealt with not railroading is I know what happens. If they interact with it, they interact with it. If not, they can make their own story and I can bring in things around it to en- like enrich that for them. Yeah, and that's a big part of that is knowing your, your, your players that you're playing with and knowing how yes. focused they are on roleplay. Yeah, I, I definitely go role play over combat in my games. I'm much, I'm definitely a storyteller. I'm not a technically minded with battle royales or anything like that. Which, yeah, still a great game. Uh, and in that in that same kind of vein, you've been talking a lot about the Olympiads and the Olympian gods. Uh, so I think that that kind of pulls us into this next question. 
what are some of your favorite integrations of inspirational material, such as literary or pop culture references, that you've done or seen in a tabletop role-playing game? Yeah, well, yeah, like I say, the obvious will be Greek literature and Greek myth. I have so many books um, that I wanted anyway, but things like the Iliad and the Odyssey, definitely, and just classic literature, where I've thrown monsters from there into scenarios, and without giving too much away, like, a lot of plot points are loosely based on things in there. Like, if anybody wanted to go and read some classics literature, they'd probably find lots of my plot in there. But there's so much of it, they can't guess which one's coming up next, so it makes it okay. Um, <laughs> apart from that, I actually really like taking... out. I've not done it on a stream as of yet, but when I play and do like one-shots of Friends, I really like taking pop culture and just throwing players in it without them knowing they're in it. And there's a lot of stuff online, and I've made some myself, like, for example, running Labyrinth, the movie, as a one-shot, but not telling them that it's Labyrinth as a movie. And waiting for each player to kind of click that they're in Labyrinth. Or recently I um, did a game where they're actually in Be Beauty and the Beast. But they were playing the bad guys. Like they were playing monsters that kind of came up upon that movie. But set after the things that had happened. And so it took them a while to realise that that's where they were. And just throwing... Oh. I love things like that. Just throwing little Easter eggs like that in that they... It also helps with inspiration as well. Because when you're coming up with... Oh, yeah. It meant, hmm, I need a room here. I'll fill it full of mimics. You know, kind of really works for the Beauty and the Beast thing. Um, so yeah, oh, yeah. I really like I really like taking like things that you wouldn't expect, like movies or stories and just classic stuff, and that turning that in itself, the full thing, into a game and just seeing what happens. That makes sense. I, I also enjoy uh, pulling in like pop culture or classical culture Easter eggs. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, I had a minotaur from a game long ago who actually ended up being a descendant of the minotaur. Oh, yeah. And even just that that level of, of Easter egg in a character's backstory is fun. Yeah, um, there's yeah, there's quite, again, no spoilers, but there is quite a lot of that in, in the Reign of Olympus game. Because with things are set... Uh, like the next age, if you like. So you had the heroes like Jason, Achilles, uh, Odysseus, and all of those, and Heracles. This is set after that, so that the players can have some glory. So okay. all of those things have happened. So, for example, they did, very early on, they did encounter Polyphemus, the Cyclops that Odysseus was trapped by. If you know the stories mm -hmm. at all, the, they ended up blinding with a like a hot, log from the fire and escaping the cyclops um polyphemus and yeah the players encountered him afterwards where he'd obtained a new eye of some like arcane properties and was using that to turn other people into similar beasts and things like that so yeah i i very much like bringing that into the game very fun uh, and I think that that also pulls us into the next question. What's your favorite monster, enemy, or obstacle from any tabletop role-playing game that you've run or played? Um, I'd say it's between two. One very silly one that came up recently, uh, and mm -hmm. one that just has always been a favorite type of enemy for me. I'd say the fav my type, favorite type of enemy is Fae. Okay. Because Fae, for me... Uh, I just love the stories around Faye and this whole seely and unseely courts and the Faye politics and things like that. I like very intelligent, are they evil, are they not enemies. So having Faye in, like, I think it's Tome of Beasts or Tome of Foes for Dungeons and Dragons that has all the Faye lords in there and things like that. Ah, uh, I think it's the Tome of Foes. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I love Faye because... I think a good villain to me is one that you're not sure is a villain. Mm -hmm. uh, I I always enjoy throwing Faye and their inscrutable nature at players as well. Yeah, just their random rules that don't form our logic can make it again difficult to tra like solve them. Like tooth fairies 
um, encountering a bridge of tooth fairies, it's like, no, we don't just take teeth, we can take arm bones too, and they just magically take them, and you're just left <laughs> randomly with, like, a very wobbly arm from where they've taken that as payment, and then just let you go on your way, and they think it's hilarious. No, no yep. malice in it at all, but they're still enemies, and it's kind of confusing, because they act really nice, and it's still the lovely tooth fairies from Fairy Tale, but they just... They technically took one of my limbs there, you know, it's... Yeah. I just And they yeah, just... They're... They see nothing wrong with it, because why wouldn't you just grow your arm back? Yeah. It's... We do this all the time. We're tooth fairies, you know. It's like... Yeah. It's, again, it's like the fireys from Labyrinth. You know, they just want to play throw the head. They don't see it as a malicious thing. They can take their head off. Why can't you? Exactly. Yeah. I, I like enemies like that, where it's very... It's not a straight line. It's a very grey area with some probably some sparkles and glitter in there for the Fae. <laughs> yeah. The silliest enemy I haven't actually... It wasn't something that I ran. It was one I played. Uh, again, the the same DM that kind of got me started as a little bit of like my mentor, teacher, mm. Obi-Wan Kenobi figure. He is currently running a game of masks. Okay. If you've heard of that system. It's got a few different ones around the same kind of rule set and it's very socially based there's only like one dice roll and that's 2d6 and get high enough to score and you don't have perception or anything like that you have social and superior and mundane and freakish and just personality traits that shift up and down so it's a very different system but we just played the end of one arc because masks is very much like comic book feel to it so it was the end of an issue almost and we were fighting a giant yeast monster over the city of Brighton. It was okay. literally like, yep, it was literally like the Sandman from a Marvel comics, but made of yeast and was slowly enveloping the city. And so, yeah, we had to try and stop that. I was trying to make a yeast or a bread pun. Oh, we made so I many. I couldn't we think of one on the spot. We made so so many. Yeah. I, yeah, we had I, to, here we go. I we had to use our low for that one. Rose to the occasion. Uh, that one was a bit <laughs> stale. Ha. Yeah, like I say, we that the half the session. The session would have been half as long if it wasn't for the puns and the random shape shifts <laughs> into British celebrities, which also happened. It was a very odd game. <laughs> All right, that is uh, that is definitely probably the most original monster I think I think that has been brought on uh, the show. Uh, yeah, his his name monster. was a yeasty boy. Uh, if that helps, uh, yeasty boy. Yeah. Uh, was he cultured? Uh, it's, uh, it's, this could go on for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Well, rather than devolve into puns, let's let's uh, take a step towards some of the listener questions. Yes, that we have. of course. Uh, our first listener question is about uh, interactions between NPCs and players. Specifically, mm -hmm. how do you handle romantic interactions between NPCs and party members or between player characters? What are some ways we can bring this part of realistic roleplay into the game without making it uncomfortable? I think the key for this one, which is why I kind of chose to talk about this, is a bit of preparation with it. And that doesn't mean going to a player, oh, next session you might meet an NPC that could, some flirting could happen, because unless you're playing a classic bard, you're not always going to know what NPCs your players are going to like and hook onto. Like we've all mm -hmm. done it where we've planned several NPCs with really big backstories and the players haven't cared and then a random NPC that you make up on the spot they love and they stick with for the entire campaign. So I more mean having that conversation not necessarily when the campaign starts, but when the campaign looks like it's getting to a more roleplay centered level where those interactions could happen asking the players what they're comfortable with and how they want to proceed. And there's lots of different ways I've seen it done. 
you know, there's the go hard or go home approach where everyone's super comfortable and just really go for it and they have a big laugh about it afterwards, but you've got to have the really right kind of people to do that. That can have that distinct line there and not feel uncomfortable. And you've got to have a DM that is really switched on and can spot if anyone around the table is having some problems with it, which is why things like the X card and stuff like that, I think, can really help. Not just in that situation, but to do with like phobias or anything like that as well. Yeah. Um, the other, the another obvious one is, you know, you don't include them, but I think that's a bit of an easy answer. But for some groups, that is going to be the case. Some groups aren't going to want to do that, which is fine. It's like maybe just look at what other interactions with NPCs can form that, whether it's like a friendship or like a maternal familial relationship that you can explore, explore instead. There's lots of different relationships you can explore besides the romantic. So don't feel like you have to put it in if no one's comfortable with it. Other things you yeah. can do is just have the implied stuff, like for the same way movies do it, have, you know, fade to black. I think before I've actually used the phrase when it's like, okay, you uh, you spend some time with such and such a character and then things, the night goes on and we fade to black and just leave it implied. Yeah. And that way, and leave it implied afterwards as well. Don't go back to it saying, well, this actually happened unless the players have decided that's okay. Just leave it as implied because sometimes that can be better than hearing the interaction because you get a little mystery in there as well. And it still keeps it in that safe space. But yeah, I think first and foremost is make sure that before anything like that comes up, that there's no issues in the player party, or especially for a stream. I would never really go that in depth to an audience because you can't regula reg regulate who watching may have some issues or not. So oh, yeah, I definitely. If you're doing it for an audience, I'd say either don't include or be very um, conservative with it. If it's in a group, make sure you know who's comfortable with what. Like in a home game, you can explore things a lot more gritty and a lot more in-depth if people are comfortable with it. And then just make sure that in-game, even if someone said now, like beforehand, yeah, this will be great, we can get a real kind of rapport going and we can, no, I don't mind, we can take it to like really romantic levels. But then if in the moment they're not okay with it, make sure you've left a way for them to have a get out as well. Like yeah. say, having the uh, X card or just being able to go, okay, I'm not feeling this. Can we move on? And then just moving on and not making a big deal out of it. I I always have in the past given my players leeway to announce and fade to black themselves yeah. as well. Yeah, that's a good way to do it. And that could be anyone. Like it, Even if it's someone yep. just watching who isn't around that campfire they could be in a different part of the world but the part of the player one of the players is not feeling comfortable and they can do that and yeah yeah that also opens it up to instead of just having a blanket coverage everybody's got a time when they can call out i'm uncomfortable with this interaction yeah. right now fade to black please yeah and that's for that doesn't have to be to do with just romance but obviously that's the one we're talking about okay. that kind of extends for a lot of things one more way I'd say about doing things like that, where um, like the the player character or the player may feel more exposed, is letting them have narrative control. Because yeah. whether you like it or not, as a dungeon master, you kind of have that implied power over it. And that's a good thing. It means you can regulate and make sure everyone's safe. But sometimes the best way to do that is let the player say what happens next. Even if it's your NPC, they, you know, it's more important that the player gets to know what happens. And so just saying to them, okay, and what do you and said NPC do now? And just letting them describe it, because then they're going to be comfortable with it. Yeah, and of course, even then they can just say, well, fade to black. Yeah, it gives it gives that option. Yeah, I think that that's a, that's a great way to handle uh, those kinds of situations without making anybody uncomfortable. Yeah. Like, nothing has to be avoided outright and instantly within, you know, apart from the obvious exceptions, but mm -hmm. having the option to avoid them and not having it just sprung on people either. People know that that might be an option in there. Yeah. And then being able to get out of that situation if people aren't feeling it. And it doesn't have to be because there's any, like, certain uh, emotional trigger or, like, 
something that's making them uncomfortable. It just might be that they just like, this has got really awkward in more of a lighthearted sense. Sometimes you still need want to move on. Yeah. yeah, it might not be for a serious reason, but you also have to plan for the worst and hope for the best. Yep. All right. Our next question is about player engagement. Mm-hmm. My players aren't engaging in the game. How can I draw them back from their distractions and into my world? Okay. Um, It's not really controversial, but I'd say the first point I'd make on that question is, is it still your world? The way I see it is, yes, I made everything and I made the story, but as soon as I added players with their own free will and thoughts of their characters in there, it stopped becoming just my world. So letting go of that, I think, helps. If it's just your world, you'd write a book. And maybe you will later. Maybe, you know, you'll base it on what you've done in this game and think I could write a book about this, but you'll write your version of that. That's your world, but it's a group storytelling. You just run it. So yeah, the first thing I would say is, is it still your world? Second thing I'd say is why aren't the players engaging? Like, have you asked why? And sometimes it is just that you don't have to say at the table, okay, why aren't you interacting with my story? Is it something I'm doing wrong? Is it something it's just saying, it could just be, Okay, where do you see this story going next? Having an open yeah. conversation as a group or one-on-one with players afterwards, you know. I think a lot of the time having a debrief after a session is good if you've got time, especially if it's been like a role-play heavy session or like a character's died or it's got like an MP- an important NPC has betrayed, you know. When the tension goes high, I think a debriefing is usually good afterwards anyway. So asking people then, okay, this session seemed a little bit slow, you guys weren't really picking up on any hooks there. Where do you see this going next? What do you want out of it? I think that's, you know, open communication in that is really important because that stops railroading. You know, you might have that main story, but it just, if the players aren't interested in it, even if you force them and railroad them, then you're not going to get as much out of it. That's not to say you give up on your story, but maybe you just need to adapt how it's done. And asking and, players what can help with that. Yeah, maybe the players have some idea of how they want to get to the exact same points that just don't match up with yours. Yeah, and that's they, fine. They still want to get to the same points in the story, just not the way that you were doing it. Yeah, they might not even know what what you're throwing at them. They might not. They may just not have picked it up. A lot of the time, yeah. you think people. Like, I've thought it sometimes. The players just really don't... They're not interacting with my story. They're not interacting with this at all. And it's just that they haven't noticed. They thought it was about something completely different. You know, there's the fa- like famous stories of, like, they spend three hours focusing on a piece of furniture they think may be important. And it's like, no, I just accidentally elaborated in my description on the chair more than I did the, the bookcase that has the secret passageway. You know, yeah. they they might just not have noticed that they were going a different direction. I I actually had that almost exact situation occur not too long ago in a group that I run. Yeah. Uh, in ruins where there were hooks for weapons on the walls that concealed secret passageways and stands for training dummies on the floor that were literally just plates of metal. <laughs> I described them. Saying, thinking maybe, okay, maybe somebody's going to just roll history or insight to see if they know what these things are. And instead, they just spend 30 minutes investigating everything around them. Yeah. It's like, it's a metal plate that's set into the floor. You can pick it up. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's the same with story. Sometimes they just, your players just don't realize what the story points are. And maybe that's that you have to be less subtle, or maybe that's a point to look back and go, okay, well, where is my story going? Is it getting mm-hmm. too complicated? Do I need to strip it back? Because if my players can't tell, then is it really the plot line that I thought it was? And it could be in multiple reasons. Another thing, I've uh, just a tip that I got, again, from my, from my Obi-Wan, was more in the game than the the world and like keeping the players interested in the game 
is make sure that each player has something in it for them at least every other session. Mm -hmm. And obviously that's easier with smaller groups, but make sure, for example, we've got a multitude of characters in ours. We've got a rogue that likes doing the mischief and the sneaking and the stealing. We've got a minotaur that likes the big tough fights. We've got uh, a cleric that really likes the gritty story uh, stuff. Uh, we've got um, like all players. They like the same world and they work as a party, but they they have their favorite things in there. So make sure like at least every other session, that even if it's just a five minute interaction with an NPC, it's like for example, oh they're going through a castle right now to talk to a noble. There's not really much chance for stealing but maybe i just put some expensive silverware there that the that the rogue can kind of pocket and have a little funny moment for them where they're just stealing silverware from the noble and that's just something that keeps them interested because that's something that they can do rather than them just following along with the rest of the characters they might just feel a bit like a like a side character or they're along for the ride rather than directly interacting with things so make sure that even in the plot you've set, you've put little side things. It doesn't have to be huge side quests. Like I say, it can be a small interaction. Make sure that every player has something in it that's keeping them interested as an individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at times that can be tough because yeah. you may either not have gotten the feel for what that player is heavily interested in yet. And if you haven't, I highly recommend taking the time to watch and observe their reactions and interactions in the games to try and figure it out. Yep. Or but, ask them. Yes. And it can be, if they don't know, ask them, okay, what are your favorite fantasy movies? Or what is your favorite <laughs> book, comic books? You know, and why? And then, you know, they might find out there. If they say Game of Thrones, it's like, oh, okay, they're going to want some betrayal and some politics in there. Maybe we can stick some of that in. You know, that can give yeah. you a clue as well. And again, however you figure it out, try to figure it out. Yeah. Uh, that way you can start to throw it in. But then there's also certain times where maybe it's a little bit tricky. For instance, I have a rogue who has said repeatedly, I am very interested in doing the sneaky thieving stuff, but then actually seems to be much more heavily interested in the sneaky thievy stuff to get political information specifically. Yeah. So monetary rewards don't do it for them. But yeah. throw them in that same noble's manner and be like, there's a letter on the desk with this other noble's seal. And they're going to pocket that. Yeah. And that, like you say, it comes with observing your players and getting to know them better. Yeah. To know exactly what why they're playing the game. Yeah. Uh, and our next question is uh, a bit related to this. My players aren't biting on any of my quest hooks. How can I make them take on something without railroading them into plot? Um, again, I kind of links very heavily to the last one is like, why aren't they biting with them? Yeah. Um, so maybe you have to change your quest hooks. Like you said before, it, as long as if you really need to get point B, does it matter if they're not taking path A to get there? Is there a path B, C, or D, and they, they could do the same thing? For example, if they need to find out about uh, an NPC that's been betraying the king, just off the top of my head, do they have to be sneaky about that? Maybe they don't have any rogue types in there. Can they not also make it so they can like get themselves invited to a big party where they can talk to people that know and get them to gossip about them instead? Because that could be really fun for a bard. Oh, yeah. And maybe that bard just happens to have connections that just lets him get five invites. Yeah. Or maybe it's even something a little less subtle in that, okay, well, that noble has a bodyguard that thinks he's all that, put him in front of the character that likes to beat things up, and when they loot it, maybe that's where the information's hidden. Maybe that noble has said, don't let anyone in during the meeting at this time. It's of utmost importance that the king does not find out. And that bodyguard had them add that on them, because 
chances are if you've got characters that like to hit things, you've got some characters that like to loop things afterwards. <laughs> so, yeah, think maybe just rethink how they get to point B. Yeah, uh, if- I... I- have something to bring back to the previous anecdote I mentioned about the plates in the floor. Yeah. Uh, Knowing that that's the kind of thing that certain characters are going to kind of obsess over, it can be very easy to then set up plot hooks in a similar fashion. Mm. You know where to dangle the bait because you know where they'll be looking. If I wanted to give them something in these ruins that might pique their curiosity and drive them on a quest. Maybe it's on the floor. Maybe it looks like a trap. Another thing is maybe they've just lost their way as a party. A lot of times players may start off being the good guys, but there's so many stories and memes out there of players slowly devolving into murder hobos or whatever you want to call them. And Mm -hmm. sometimes they might just need a big shock to the system to change that. And that could be like a beloved NPC gets involved. One of those MP- random NPCs that you had no intention of using again that they've now decided is their best friend. Maybe they get involved, and that way there's an emotional connection. Maybe the players accidentally go too far, and that brings them back from the edge of what they were turning into and brings them back on the path that they originally were on. Maybe there were repercussions for their actions. Yes, I love repercussions that aren't necessarily the players die because or the characters die because of it because nine times out of ten then they will just bring back other characters that haven't learned that if you can keep the characters alive but learn their lesson that's yeah i think that's much better because that's how you get growth and character growth as well maybe your party that lost its way uh has gone a little murder hobo-y and has also opened a bakery well if their actions paint them in a bad light, the bakery might lose business or might even get shut down by the city or burned down by an angry mob. Yeah. One of my favorite things that um, I was kind of keeping up my sleeve, uh, but it, I think it's a good one to share. So I'll kind of take out the mystery for the good of the bigger community is especially if your quests and your story is getting a little bit out of hand and you want to reset things or have some time to kind of rejig your story, throw the characters in jail for five to ten years. You know, maybe, you know, they haven't died. They haven't had to fight their way out of something. Maybe they've tried. But depending on their level as well, maybe they've lost all their shiny magical toys because they were confiscated by the state or the crown. Maybe... If they're part of organizations, like a cleric is in a temple, or a paladin is part of an order, or, you know, um, a fighter is part of a regiment, they've been disowned or disavowed from that because of their actions. Because a lot of the they time, the players... They lose their status. They lose yeah, their money. Yeah, they will forget that the things they're doing... No, you realize that, yes, you're the players, so you're the, you're the center of the story, but the things you're doing are still illegal. Yeah. And you might be doing it to finish a quest, but maybe you are still like breaking into places and fighting things and possibly murdering people to get that done. That's still illegal. So yeah, I think rather than kill a player or kill a character, sorry, put them in jail for enough time that all those quests that they were in the middle of doing, they've either resolved themselves or it's too late to fix them. Though I... the things that they've earned, they've lost them. The world has moved on without them. And that can humble them as well, because especially if they are released and no one remembers them. Yeah. And they have to build that back up again and learn to be better this time because the uh, yeah, the world has moved on without them. They weren't the center of the world. They were just the center of our world. Yeah. I, I've done some very fun things in the past uh, where... It's more about the the losing of the status. And so uh, it was a situation where they did... I forget what it specifically they did, but it was atrocious. Mm. And as such, the guards attempted to arrest them. Rather than be arrested, the players fought. Which players often just choose to do as their default. 
They fought several of the guards, but of course, several players can't go up against an entire city's guard force and yeah. army. And were eventually forced to retreat. Which led to them being banned from that city and a bounty posted on them. Yeah. Well, when it turned out that a quest had to take them back to that city a little later on, that turned into a whole big thing. Suddenly, the city is being treated as a dungeon-type encounter yeah. where they have to break in when, had they not done that, and the quest brought them back to the city, they could have just walked in. Yeah. Yeah, and like I say, I think that it can help, not just when the players are kind of got lost their way, but also when you want to reshake things. Maybe, like, you've kind of overcommitted to a quest hook that you've realized you have that you need to move move it along and it isn't working. Five mm -hmm. years later, that might not matter. Obviously, don't throw your characters in jail just because you've lost track of your story. That would be mean. Um, but yeah. it can help with both things. I, I also have a little deus ex machina of that because my the Olympians are so tied to them and almost every one of them has a patron god that they want favor or advice from. A lot of the time, the play people that play the gods are watching or hear about the things the players do, so they will tell them that they've either done wrong or they need to keep doing what they're doing. And they almost get like that parental encouragement or chastising from the Olympians, which is great. Hmm. Very fun. Uh, and this will be our last question, but on the 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 topic of quest hooks and engagement how can you make a big bad a target to aspire to instead of just annoyingly hard to kill or overpowered the way i do it again because i don't my games are never stat based like you could play the most underpowered class you like in whatever tabletop you want and i'd still find a way to make it work for you because they're story driven so for me, what one of the things there's several things, and I'll have to give several because then the my players won't guess which one I'm doing to them sometimes. <laughs> um, is maybe have them start out as one of those beloved NPCs, mm -hmm. and not to say that they were like a doppelganger or a, they were evil all along and just playing them. Maybe. Things that go on in the world, and even sometimes things the players do, depending on what the players do, wears away at them and their morality and who they are as a person until eventually that person they knew turns into the villain of the story. They get that opportunity and they start to feel those things and then the party end up having to fight them and it makes it a lot harder because they have that connection. So yeah. whilst it's quite, e it might be easier to fight them because they're not super strong, it's harder for the players to actually bring themselves to do it. That can be fun. Um, in terms of if you're worried about stats and overpowered, the best thing I can, best advice I can give is have the players fight themselves. Um, we did it recently in that a whole, the well in the middle of Lagina, which is Hecate's city, erupted with spectres and ghosts and half of the party were possessed by ghosts and so I just told the players that they uh, once it was revealed they were possessed I just got them to fight each other so yeah that, so that's obviously that doesn't work for the big bad but that works to kind of give them a little bit of a challenge is that they've gained all these magical items and these classes and some of them may have even optimized but then it's worked against them that's quite a, a fun one to do but, yeah, but yeah, I would always have my biggest advice for villains, like big end of campaign villains, is you can either make them cosmic so they can't fight them head on. And I know that's kind of overpowered, but I mean less so in like it's difficult to fight them, but they could still win. And more, it's impossible to fight them. They're practically a whole world. There's something else we have to be cleverer about beating them. And that's going to require its own set of quests to do that. And then maybe yeah. maybe that's not even the bad big bad after all. Maybe it was just they were the strongest force, but 
like the whole um, Dark Knight Rises, you know, Bane may have been the stronger one, but he wasn't the mastermind behind it. Yeah. Or, yeah, or a or a person they get to know slowly evolves into that. Or you go, kind of make it a whole, something that my home DM is kind of doing, is you don't know which side's right. Make it a moral grey area. Both of them have what seem like noble goals, but they're going about it the same way in kind of a Captain America Civil War-esque manner in that, you know, players could fall on either side of that. And yeah. they can either split the party, which will make it difficult, and could, but could still be interesting if you can handle that, or they're going to have to spend a long time deciding which side of that fight they sit on. And then after it's done, dealing with whether that was right or not, and how they went about stopping it. Because they can either yeah. go full force and destroy the opposition and realise we shouldn't have done that. Yes, they were kind of wrong, but their intentions were good and there were still some good people fighting that fight. Or they have to try and resolve it without resorting to just destroying the other side. They have to try and come to some sort of mutual resolution. Doesn't always have to be just one big bad that's that. Again, grey areas would be my advice. Yeah, I, always I, gray areas. I also really loved using gray areas in both what the manner that you discussed, but also kind of in the reverse where you cannot take them on head on. You need help. <laughs> the only people that help you are not any better. Yeah. yeah you have to one. choose it's who the are lesser you, of who, two evils, yeah. Yeah. Who is going to be the lesser of two evils that you latch onto and give more power to? And are you going to have to deal with them later? Yeah. I've I've come across the same thing myself as a player. Like, we beat them. That's closed them off, but now, oh no, now that means that that person is unopposed. You know. Yeah. So yeah. It's... Just make it more complicated would be my advice. Don't make it as simple as, we beat the end boss, we win. Make it a lot and, more complicated than that. And if it is, we beat the end boss and win, make winning complicated. Yeah. Uh, just because the evil general is dead doesn't mean that his lieutenants or his army disperses. Yeah. And even if they do, if it's a big cosmic being that you ba essentially, like, nuke, for a lack of any better word, like, you just really destroyed and demolished what kind of collateral damage did that do to the rest of your campaign world yeah if it's a literal cosmic entity and you blasted it apart well congratulations now there's a meteor shower destroying huge parts of the world that you've got to protect yeah is the and then this it might be a little mean but depending on if the your players would like that or not was there an easier way to have done it yeah that would have saved land or lives, depending on, again, the mood of your campaign. I always love giving choices like that. You mm. can banish it, you can trick it, you can befriend it, you can kill it, and there's different outcomes and ramifications for each of them. Yeah. Yeah, never make it simple. Because, well, some people like that, and there's games where it is, go out on quest, get the loot, bigger, okay, stronger thing, let's fight that. Better loot, stronger thing. And that's great for like a casual beer and beer and pretzels, let's just have fun fighting things game. But for my kind of games where it's all about storytelling and that epic, never make it that simple. If you make it that simple, then it doesn't really belong in the same world and it will cheapen the ending for your players that have gone through all of this just to have a really simple ending. And the, the last thing I have to say about this is if you are going down like a... Uh, the big bad is just a bigger, tougher enemy to kill who's behind all of these other things, and that's it. There's nothing cosmic or extra complicated about it. And you're concerned about something like this, just don't make them hard to kill. If the players beat them early on, congrats to the players. Yeah. Just make sure the players get an ending that they deserve. doesn't have to yeah. be one that they want, expect or like but make sure it's one they deserve because it is the ending and a lot of the time it can be years of play you don't want to cheapen that by giving it not giving it the best that it could be 
Yeah, and if that means that your big bad is underpowered compared to them, and you want to keep him alive, well, maybe he isn't strong enough, and he does get killed. And that just means that somebody else who is stronger... Yeah. And it might... You may know, rise to the occasion. The end doesn't have to be the end. The end could just be the end for your players. And I don't mean TBK. Yeah. I mean, that could just be the end of their story. There still might be other stuff going off in the world, but maybe the players have been through too much and it's time for other adventurers to pick up that. And that's how you've got a basis for another campaign. I mean, uh, a little bit of spoilers for people who may not have seen this very old movie now, uh, but if you have been following any of the Marvel movies, think of the big bad evil guy that's easy to kill as Thanos at the end when Thor just... Yeah. Goes whole ham. Yeah. It was easy. Doesn't mean it's the end of the story, though. No. And it was poetic, and it worked for what it was. Yeah. The villain kind of destroyed themselves. And sometimes that can be satisfying as well. Yeah. Maybe satisfying for the players, but maybe not satisfying for the characters. And then dealing with that situation can become the next end of the story which yeah all right well i think that that's where we're going to leave it today thank okay. you so much for coming on luke no again thank you for having me this has been a lot of fun and yeah all right thank you for listening to this episode of running the table with luke from have a go heroes and as always if you find yourself with questions that you want answered about anything tabletop role-playing game related, please send them to rttpodcast at gmail.com or at Running the Table on Twitter or Facebook. <laughs>